It's 2023. Sorry it took us so long to uh, record something in this lovely new year of ours. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're recovering from sickness and, and hangovers, respectively. We, I won't say which which one that respectively applies to. I feel like if people listen to this... We're finally back in the saddle. <laughs> if people listen to this enough, they can guess who, who is Dawa Krank and who is... <laughs> yeah. But we're back, and we're bringing you a long-awaited reaction episode. Yeah, in addition to the second part of Fritz Bartel, the extended interview with him, uh, we've also got our reaction part of it coming up after we come to uh, the second part of that interview with Fritz. So yeah, this is the second time we're doing this and people seem to like it. So we're excited to, to do that again and kind of bring some of our own perspective to some of these great guests that we managed to get on the pod. So thanks again to all the listeners and supporters. Uh, thanks to Professor Bartel for coming on. And if you don't have anything else, Michelle, we'll cut to the interview. Let's roll it. Rolling. The focus of your book is on, you know, basically NATO countries and, and Warsaw Pact countries, you know, sort of your classic kind of very traditional East-West uh, showdown and then how it plays out differently there. And if you, you know, take into account other stories about the Cold War, right? Like probably most notably like Arne Westad's The Global Cold War, right? Where he, he says, actually, we should take the focus away from Europe and, and say this is, a, you know, a battle for the, the global South, the third world. What was the kind of impact here in, in countries like that? I mean, what, what was it as noticeable because there just weren't as many promises made, so there were fewer to break? Or did it affect the legitimacy of one system over the other in the eyes of these countries that were sort of being competed for by these competing blocs? Like, any sort of thoughts on, on, I guess, yeah, the rest of the world? Yeah. Well, so, and I actually got this general idea that it was, Sovereign debt was one of the key parts of the of the let's say the global North Cold War story. Um, I only got that by looking at what was happening in the global South. So the standard global one of the very shorthand ways of describing what happens in the global South is the energy shocks of the 1970s and governments' own modernization attempts. But let's say primarily the energy and and also food shocks of the 1970s lead these governments to borrow enormous amounts of money. Many of them are authoritarian or dictatorial in various ways, anti-democratic in various ways. And they're, but they're able to survive the 1970s by borrowing and providing their people with some kind of economic stability and, and a little bit of growth. And it's only after the Volcker shock and the, and the, um, their, their own sovereign debt crisis, what becomes known as either the sovereign debt crisis or the Latin American debt crisis in the 1980s, where they're, they're faced with the imperative of imposing discipline at, at the hands of the IMF, right? And those, they were imposing the Washington consensus as it became known. Uh, going along with that, or the way that they, that many of these governments actually achieve that is by turning to democratic elections. And so, uh, I'm not a scholar of Latin America, but the, the, general way that the 1980s are told is both as the oncoming of the Washington consensus and as a, a wave of de democratic uh, revolutions or reform. And so this idea that, that debt and austerity and democracy went hand in hand uh, is, I think, a new contribution to the history of the global north 
but it's one that has long been known in the history of the global south. And so by telling it about the global north, I hope what I'm doing is actually just making kind of de-exceptionalizing the events of 1989, for instance. Like if you think of 89 as just another year in the sovereign debt crisis, where some countries democratize as a way to appease the IMF, then the end of the Cold War starts to look pretty normal in the global history of the 1980s, where this had been happening for quite a long time, uh, for basically a decade across uh, Latin America and some portions of East Asia uh, and Africa as well. So, um, yes, it's a history of the global north, but it's one very much inspired by the um, the, the narratives and, and the, the analysis that we already have of what's going on in the global south. Thank you so much again to um, Professor Bartel for the interview. And I think, Ted, you wanted to start with some additional quotes that you didn't get to talk about or? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was a great interview. Obviously, we um, really appreciate Professor Bartel taking all that time. But of course, we can't get to everything, you know, about 350 page book. And there's a few things that he concludes with that I thought were really interesting. One he talks about sort of the, the, the writing of history and, and social science more generally and talking about causality and, and how causes and effects. And he says in the conclusion, and I kind of like this quote, he said, there is, of course, no universal and ironclad relationship between economic causes and political effects. So it is incumbent upon anyone who would propose a relationship between a particular set of economic causes and a particular set of political effects to justify the reasons for doing so and specify the exact nature of the causal relation. Then he says his book is, is one attempt to do that. And I thought that was interesting in the, the, the humility that he shows there, because in one sense, this is a it's a really sweeping argument, right? Combining this sort of ideological rise of neoliberalism, the oil crisis, the end of the Cold War. I mean, it's really one of probably the question of the end, uh, the second half of the 20th century. And, and he has this sort of, yeah, like I said, sweeping and all-inclusive and quite parsimonious narrative about that. But at the same time, the sort of humility of saying, well, no, you, you need to actually get the empirics right and, and show what you're talking about. I, I appreciated that because there is a there can be a sort of a proliferation of theory devoid of empirics. And, and I thought, I thought his book was great at, at really getting into the archives and, and showing in detail exactly what he's talking about and that the, the actual people in power had said and had, had agreed with his thesis. And he says this, you know, I'm not inventing a new historical narrative. I'm taking the things that people in power at the time thought and sort of re-excavating them and talking about them. And in doing so, he says, and I like this as well, he says, to title the causal process the triumph of broken promises is, in a way, to tell the history from the loser's point of view, because he cites so many of the communist leaders and their stresses about being reliant on Western finance and the, the consequences of the oil shock. And again, I, I also like this idea of the, the history written by the losers and his, his unique and really compelling angle that he takes in this. I thought that us like, having our first episode back in the middle of January would prevent us from needing to talk about the um the new year's eve discourse but it's like still happening over two weeks later yeah. they're still making they're still making fireworks yeah. racist in Germany yeah. somehow and they're uh, and the cops are getting stuck in the mud and oh, that was we're so gonna do a little news roundup episode next week so don't 
um, don't despair. We'll get to all those fun things. I watched it like eight times. <laughs> Pretty delighted. We got to get the monk on the show. Dream guest. Like, <laughs> aren't monks like? How did he not silent? get stuck in the mud? Like he's like, light footed. He, he's light he on like his wearing, feet. Was he like bare feet or something? No, like I, think, I said, they're big no, heavy I thought boots. Of, I thought could... about this. I think it's their yeah. Their boots are like steel toed, and the the mud is a menace to the cops. This had me thinking about who the enemy is in Lutzeraf or who the IID wants you to think is the enemy. <laughs> and just kind of... Not not to be confused with AFD, although their rhetoric sorry, has been a little bit A-R-D, similar recently. <laughs> ARD, the public broadcaster, who I just have more and more of an axe to grind with. They didn't interview like a single protester. They were just like talking to all the cops. Um in this village um, where the pro- the climate protesters are trying to prevent the coal from being dug out of the ground and so they're squatting. Yeah, I just I just really wonder like about these reactions that you always see where it's so easy to make an enemy out of like the one kid who glued their hand to the street and it's somehow like that protester's fault that everything is not going as it should be. And there the Greens are like waiting in the wings to like justify their half-assed policy and and kind of like find some exact like minute point of how, oh, but actually like we'll still reach the goal by 2035 because there will be this compensation and like um, procedurally, we had to do it this way. Oh, the, the Greens, the, for context, the Green Party conference having voted to continue this, right? So they're so yeah. they're talking out both sides of their mouth here of like campaigning for, you know, against coal, but then oh, we have to just now because of the war. It, it, like it's they're they're really spinning themselves in circles trying to justify this. 